Welcome to episode 128 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak with Aline Anello. Aline is the president and founder of Legal Impact for Chickens. She graduated from Harvard Law School, clerked for a federal judge, and then started litigating on behalf of animals. She's worked at People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, the Animal Legal Defense Fund, and the Good Food Institute. Aline is licensed to practice law in New York, the District of Columbia, and in California. She's committed to helping chickens to honor the memories of her two beloved avian family members, Conrad and Zeke. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 127 others. I'm a little shocked by that number every time I read it out. <laughs> Don't forget to work through that back catalogue if you've just found us. Every person who reviews and rates or shares our podcast with a friend helps us to nudge more people towards more compassionate, rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates or search for the word sentientism on your favourite social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Aline. How are you? I'm great. Good morning. I'm so excited to be on the podcast. Likewise, it's an honor to have you as a guest. And thank you for making a sharp start in the California day to join me today. It's great to have you here. And we have we have a bit of podcast network overlaps because I heard you on Spencer Greenberg's Clearer Thinking yeah. podcast. And that was fascinating. So I'm really excited to get to talk to you here. Um, and I and was you were on, on Spencer Greenberg's podcast. Yeah, so I was on I was yeah. on that too. I can't remember which number. Yeah, but, I heard you, you know, there too. <laughs> a while before you. So it's nice to overlap there and that Spencer's talked to us both. Um, and I was really excited to hear that you're a you know, subscriber and follower to our YouTube and podcast too. And I thought, I, I knew you'd listened to or watched our conversations with Erin Wynn and Ingrid Newkirk and Mark Beckoff, but you just told me you probably listened to or watched to all the episodes. So I'm deeply honoured to have you as a such a dedicated <laughs> listener and watcher. Thank you. Thank you for making them. It's really, really cool. So you know this better than anybody, probably better than me now, but for those who might have dialed in, uh, this is a series of conversations about what I think of as the two deepest philosophical questions, what's real and what matters. So if you like epistemology, how should we understand reality in the world and ethics, who and what matters. And I have an obvious bias because I'm trying to popularize and develop this really simple worldview called sentientism, which suggests that when we're thinking about what's real, we should take a naturalistic approach using evidence and reason, as opposed to something maybe supernatural or revealed or fideistic. And when it comes to ethics, our scope, our compassion should extend to all sentient beings, any being that has the capacity to experience, to suffer, to flourish. Um, but I'm talking to people, as you know, in these conversations who agree or disagree with sentientism. So it'll be interesting to understand your own personal stories. We go through those crazily big questions. But before we do that, how would you best introduce yourself to people who don't know of you and your work? Hi, I'm Aline. I run a litigation nonprofit called Legal Impact for Chickens. And our goal is to make factory farm cruelty a liability. So we sue companies for abusing animals on factory farms. Is that enough or should I yeah, say more that's about me? That, that sounds great because <laughs> okay. I think we'll, we'll, we'll learn all about you and your philosophical journey through the main part of this. And it'll be great to come back to legal impact for chickens and how you think you know, your work and the law more broadly might be a positive 
lever of change we can pull on too. So yeah, we'll dig in deeper. So that's a great intro. So let's start with the first of those uh, very big questions, what's real? So for many of my guests, that's a story about whether they grew up originally in quite a naturalistic, scientifically minded um, context and family, or one that was maybe more religious or supernatural or spiritually influenced, and how that side of their thinking has changed through the course of their life, if it has. So you can wind the clock back as far as you like, but it would be fascinating to understand your sort of epistemological journey so far. So for me, this, my story seems very boring, although maybe it's unusual, so maybe it's not boring for other people, but um, I was raised as an atheist. So ever since I was a kid, um, my parents just taught me about like the world based on what we could observe. And then I didn't even learn about, they didn't teach me anything about God. The first time I learned about God was from my friend was she was, I was on the playground with two of my close friends and they were talking to each other about this guy that could watch could see us and he could always see us like even if we were at home and I remember just being like but how could he see us if we were at home because if he was not in our house then the walls and the and the ceiling would be in the way and um we kind of got into an argument and so they um they asked the camp counselor sorry the sun is getting crazy they asked the camp counselor and the camp counselor agreed with them like yes there's this person named god and he can see you everywhere and I was so confused and surprised that I didn't know about this. And I like went home and told my mom and my mom just said, oh, well, that's something that some people believe, but it's not true. And um, just don't argue with them because you don't want to make them upset. So that was like how I learned about God. Um, and yeah, it's, so just and it's, interesting your parents, an it's interesting that your parents didn't bring it up. Do you think that was because they, they didn't want you to engage with the ideas of religion or did they just think it was totally irrelevant? Uh, maybe I was five or six or seven at the time. I think if I had waited, they eventually would have brought it up because they both um, feel very strongly about being atheists. Yeah. Which is, I guess it's kind of surprising that I didn't even know at the time that that was an issue. So I don't know. Maybe it just didn't come up for such a small kid. Probably yeah. it comes up mostly when they're talking about being frustrated about certain things that they were like maybe encouraged to do that they don't agree with um and i guess when i was that age it just didn't come up for me yeah um but the, so i'm an atheist today but um for both of them they were sort of maybe at some point expected to be religious when they were younger and they didn't want to and for me because i've never been encouraged to be religious i think i have a much more positive view of religion it's it just seems like something that other people do and it sometimes makes them happy and i'm happy for them if they're happy I know some people are like pressured to be religious and it makes them really unhappy. And I feel bad about that, but yeah. I guess for me personally, it's just not been a really big deal in my life. It's just like, I don't believe in it. And it seems nice if people enjoy believing in it, I guess. Yeah. Makes sense. And, and um, so like you say, in a way, that's quite a straightforward story. And I think you're right. It's, um, <laughs> it's becoming more common now, of course. Right. But as I, I think, as I was growing up, it was, it was pretty unusual, you know, almost everywhere around the world, nearly everyone had some form of religious default when they were growing up. And, and most of the atheists you talk to, as with most of my guests, not all of whom are atheists, but those who are atheists do have a story about how they've moved away from a religious worldview. Uh, but it, yeah, it's progressively getting more and more common, I think, in ma many, if not most places around the world, that people are just brought up as a, an atheist by default. And it's just a sort of standard baseline and they move on and they don't necessarily engage with it but it's so in a way it's it's quite a straightforward story but obviously you, you 
you know, you grew up in a society where religion was more normal. You talked about that conversation. There must have been other mm. things at school or other places. Was there any point at which you were intrigued by it, you dug into it, you challenged it, you examined it? Or was it always something where you just like, I just don't get this, so I'm not even going to spend time on it? Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess there's a few different ways I could answer that question. One thing is the broader question about what's real. Um, I don't really feel like being an atheist answers that question for me. And so I did, I do feel like it's kind of hard to know if anything's real. I guess for me personally, I don't feel like I have evidence of anything at all. Like, I don't think that I have evidence that I exist because I could be just imagining it or um, maybe I'm imagining it at this moment and maybe all my memories are imaginary. And like this moment is really the only moment that this experience I'm having right now is really the only experience I could be sure of. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess um, one thought I've often had is that if you really, well, actually my friend originally is the one who told me this and I've been very convinced. So I have this friend named Lyra And when we were in high school, at some point, she said, like, well, I'm an atheist because I don't believe in things that aren't proven. And so therefore, I don't believe in molecules because, like, I don't have any evidence of molecules. I'm just hearing about them in school. But then I started saying we started just kind of having this conversation and realizing we didn't really have evidence of anything, like even things we could see, like a chair. How do we know we're seeing it and not imagining it? Um, And how do we even know that, like, we're humans with brains that could imagine things as opposed to, like, some other phenomenon that's happening. Yeah. Um, so I guess my worldview is that I don't really feel like I have proof of anything. Um, even even a lot of people I think who are atheists will say like, well, there's no proof that God is real, but there's proof of like science being real. And I guess to me, I generally believe in science because it feels real, but in my head, I don't really feel like there's evidence of anything. Um, well, yeah, so- like I remember there's that phrase, I think therefore I exist. And in my mind, I'm like, how do we even know we exist, really? <laughs> that's quite, so that in a way, that's quite an ex, a sort of extreme skeptical point of view. I mean, even to get to the point of saying, you know, I'm not sure anything is is real. Um, I guess one silly way of challenging that is, how do you actually function in life? Yeah. Because, because if, if you're genuinely not sure anything's real, you're not, you're not sure if, you know, there's a door in front of you or not, when you go to walk through the gap in the wall, there must be something going on that enables you to operate in the world where you might not have proof, but surely you've got enough confidence, enough credence. There's enough. I don't, I don't know. I think I function the way that I guess you'd expect an atheist would function. Like I don't pray. So I assume that there's no God. I don't do any decisions that would be based on there being a God, but I do like walk and assume that there's going to be a ground to walk on. (laughs) And I basically assume, I guess I live in a naturalistic way, assuming that the things I see are real. And um, that if somebody has seems trustworthy, then the things they say are like probably true most of the time, unless they're saying the kind of thing that people are often wrong about, like they're mad and they're assuming negative characteristics to somebody else while they're mad. so I think that day to day, I live very much like a naturalistic type person yeah. that is an atheist. Um, but I guess, theoretically, it just occurs to me that we really don't know anything at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and I've, the way, I guess the way I found through that personally, I don't 
know if it resonates with you is on the, on the one extreme, there's a sort of total skepticism. We know nothing. We can know nothing. Um, on the other extreme is a sort of dogmatic confidence that we're a hundred percent sure. Um, and you can get locked into that with, if you, if we think that belief is binary and we think that to believe something, you need a hundred percent solid proof that cannot be challenged, then you get stuck a bit like that. I think you're like, I either believe, or I do not believe it's a hundred percent or it's zero and that's it. And to my mind, I, I've, I quite like the idea of using probability and credences and, you know, a sort of amateurish version of Bayesian reasoning that says, look, yeah, we're never going to be a hundred percent sure. You're never going to have perfect proof outside of maths, maybe or some other formal system. So let's, let's sort of give up on that ambition of having perfect proof, but we can at least gather enough evidence to give ourselves credences and probability probabilities about what's going on to enable us to navigate the world. So I, I might still be 99% sure of something, but that's, that's good enough for me to be going on with. And if evidence contradicts that I'll change those probabilities. Um, so that's the way I found through that is sort of binary choices just to reject the binary and say, look, we're just evolved apes trying to work out with imperfect perception and mental faculties what the hell is going on. Why would we ever expect to have perfect knowledge? Mm. A probabilistic sort of rough approach is is pretty good. I and mean, you can actually get decent credences out there. So I don't know if that helps at all. So in, in that sense, that I, you know, in, that, in that sense, <laughs> I, I am an atheist, right? Because I don't have a belief in a God and I'm very confident there isn't one. But I wouldn't say my credence in the possibility of a deity is absolutely zero. I just say it's, you know, it's extremely, it's extremely close to zero. So in, in a way, I'm a sort of extreme agnostic. But so I don't know if that shifts at all. Because I suspect that practically that we're probably sense, in a like... fairly similar space. But Maybe I could say there's probably a world outside my body and I probably have a body, but I'm not a hundred percent sure of those facts. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think that's fair. I think it's fair. You know, we could, we could be Boltzmann brains or we could be, you know, running in a simulation. There's all sorts of outlandish ideas we should give some credence to, but I think we can be pretty confident that you exist and I exist and we're talking over zoom and, you know, it's worthwhile continuing the conversation. With enough credence. <laughs> I do want to continue the conversation. Yeah, don't hang I up. Exactly. So you must, yeah. you must, you must believe I exist in some sense, or at least to a certain degree that you're willing to keep talking I to me. I think like I instinctually kind of feel like the world is real. It's only, um, it's only like when I'm sort of sitting back and analyzing, well, how do I know? Yeah. And then I realize that every single way of knowing is like not trustworthy because yeah. Pretty much anything you know relies on your memory to some extent. Like if you were to say, well, I know that um, I know that there is a person on the Zoom screen because I see a person with like eyes and a nose and a mouse. Yeah. That is relying on me remembering that that's what people look like or maybe having like um, some kind of intuition that I evolved with that that's what people look like. But if I know that my memory is correct, like maybe that is a made up memory, the way that when you hallucinate, you make up. Yeah. Yeah. things right or when you dream okay this is a good example i often have dreams that involve memories so in my dream i'll remember something happening it's not like i experience it i'll just think oh yes this is my house i remember it but in reality i don't remember it it's made up i've never seen it before yeah. so theoretically i could be imagining that i remember that this is what a person looks like and maybe in reality this is the first time i've ever seen something like this yeah maybe and but i think and the only suggestion i make is when you say you know in a way nothing's trustworthy i'd i'd say mm -hmm. well nothing's perfectly trustworthy but i think you can have degrees of trust in the evidence and you can get corroborating support for those ideas because it it also seems interesting to me that 
if you were genuinely skeptical of our ability to believe anything, your your stances and your beliefs in a way would be completely arbitrary. I mean, you would believe almost anything. Any, you, it's almost the flip side of the skepticism is believing anything you're told or believing anything random you come up with. And you don't seem like that sort of person either, right? You don't seem to believe in well, random like crazy all stuff. Things but- I'm saying, none of them affect... It's like I have two versions of how I think. Yeah, yeah. The main version, which is how I operate day to day, is like, I believe that news articles are like probably true and yeah. that things I see are probably the way I lo- they look and that what I learned in school is probably correct unless I since learned that they were wrong. But then um, theoretically that I think to myself, like, how do I know any of this? And yeah, yeah. even when you're saying, well, you can have a probabilistic a probabilistic estimation. Yeah. It seems like the the only way you're going to come up with that is going to be using your mind, basically. Yeah. And how do I know that my mind is functioning correctly, I guess, is what I'm basically thinking. Is like, yeah. if you think of when you're dreaming, you have all these thoughts that are just wrong. And you would never, at least for me, I never figure out that they're wrong in the dream. It's not until I wake up that I realize it's wrong. So yeah. I guess what I'm thinking is if I don't know for sure my mind is functioning correctly, then everything, all bets are off. I, I get it. And and I think one of the things I, I might challenge you with, I'd say, well, my confidence that my perception is at least somewhat correlated with reality is because I'm an evolved ape that is part of a biological lineage that has developed capacities, particularly because they helped us procreate and survive. So that implies to me they had some correlation with reality because it's difficult to procreate and survive if you can't perceive reality at least roughly right. And you might say, yeah, but even what you just said about us being an evolved ape that has evolved is also a product of... <laughs> That's what you know, I was going to say. Exactly. There's, no, say. there's, like no, escape. there's, no, there's yeah. no escape from the ultimate skepticism. <laughs> the ultimate. So let's let's leave that there, but that's fascinating because it feels to me like you're, <laughs> like you said, you're sort of in a, in a practical sense, a sort of probabilistic, practical naturalist in the way you navigate the world, yeah. but you've got a really strong intellectual skepticism, at least at the back of your mind, which is saying this could all be bullshit. (laughs) And I think part of what I like about that in my mind is just that it helps me have more empathy for people who think very differently than I do. Like if somebody does believe in God, then um, I can kind of tell myself, well, you know, I don't really know anything. So they believe in something I don't think they have proof for, but I believe in a lot of things that I don't have proof for. Yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and I like and I, I like that because I struggle with that sometimes. You know, my snarkiness can come out, and I can be overconfident and dogmatic <laughs> and challenging. Um, but but at the same time, and you know, we might come onto this as we start to talk about ethics. There's some risks there too because if we if we abandon the stance completely and we're so open minded that we can say, well, yeah, maybe they're right. That can open the door to some very very awful people and some very very awful things. So um, I don't I don't want to list any particular examples, but you can imagine the sorts of things I'm thinking of where open-mindedness you know has its limits and we should not be open-minded we should say no this thing you believe is extremely likely to be wrong and the fact you believe it is causing these obvious awful ethical harms to victims so no i am you know i'm not 100 percent sure you're right but i have enough confidence you're wrong and i can see the harms you're doing that i'm going to stand up to that so that's part of my worry about being too generously open-minded is at some point we do sort of have to push back on people who've got broken epistemology and ethics and and stand up to them with something and that for me that something is a sort of probabilistic naturalistic grounding on epistemology as well as a, a stance on ethics too but so i think there's I'm is there so some risk there or? That. 
No, I think you're right. And I'm really glad you said that because um, one thing I keep wondering when I'm listening to the podcast is you mostly ask questions and I often am wondering what you're thinking because you're just listening and asking. And so I often wonder, okay, so I know that naturalism is important to you and I want to know why it's important to you. Um, and I think you just kind of explained it is basically, I think what you're implying is it all kind of does come down to morality in the end. And you're concerned that like somebody who's taking a non-naturalistic worldview can make, can create a fake world and then basically harm people and cause suffering well, that's, because they're forcing people to do their thing. I wouldn't say it's quite that. That is a concern okay. I have. That's a concern okay, I have. Okay. That's a concern I have. But in a way that just thinking that way, would itself be a form of motivated reasoning? It would be, you know, the only reason I'm, or the main reason I'm a naturalist is because I think it has, po has ethically positive outcomes, but naturalism might not actually be the best way of understand the, and understanding the world. I actually think independently of ethics, that the best way to understand reality is to build credences using evidence and by reasoning about those things. I just don't think there's an alternative. You know, the alternative really is dogma where you've arbitrarily chosen something to believe or a fideistic approach where you just arbitrarily decide to believe in something because of pure faith, um, or you have some sort of warped, broken type of of naturalistic epistemology where you've worked out what you want to believe, and then you cherry pick the evidence and warp your reasoning to you know, retrospectively justify it. And I think all of those different approaches, and actually a pure skeptical approach, which says we can never know anything, I think those are all worse ways of accurately understanding reality than just with humility, using evidence and reason to build credences. So independent of ethics, I still think that sort of methodological naturalism is the best way to understand reality accurately. I would still think that even if it had negative ethical impact. I also independently think that it also happens to have positive ethical impacts, because if you want to have a positive impact on the world, it's useful to understand it well. And this you that makes have, total sense because because, because I, there are there are many compassionate people who believe wrong things about the world who go on to do terrible terrible things so so it, it sort of works both ways but I do have independently this naturalistic stance that says you know regardless of ethics that's the best way of understanding reality that makes sense so basically you're saying you just think naturalism is true well I think it's the best it way be... of, it's the best way of it's the, our best chance if you like of having appropriate credences about reality. With so it, it, I wouldn't necessarily say it's true. I'm just saying, yeah, that's why it's a sort of, that's sort of a methodological naturalism. It's like the best way to understand reality is to use evidence and reasoning and hopefully good quality evidence and good quality reasoning. That gives you the best chance. It doesn't guarantee you'll be right. It doesn't guarantee you won't make mistakes, but it's the best method we have. So try and use that as well as you can. And we'll always fail. We'll never get it right, but it's better than anything else. And we shouldn't expect it that to be perfect either. That makes sense. And I think I agree with you. Like, even though I was saying all these things about theoretically, I don't know anything. Um, <laughs> in a day-to-day -day basis, I try to figure out is real based on what I can observe or what people who seem to be paying attention to what they observe and honestly reporting it are telling me or, you know, like yeah. what studies say that I think are trustworthy. Um, so I think I agree with you about that. <laughs> Yeah, I just yeah, that's a, well, you've got this. Long, it took me longer to kind of get to that, but that makes sense. Yeah, but you've still got this strong skeptic in the back of your mind, which I think can be a really healthy thing. But it's also going to give me a really interesting angle as we move on to this second question: think about what matters and who matters. Um, 
because I think you're distinctive in that from many of my guests. Because when we're thinking about you know having a, a religious or a supernatural worldview, quite often that comes packaged with some ethics as well. You know, there's the Bible or the Quran or a list of rules, and um, you know ultimately there's also the authority of God or God is the perfect good, and you you have to replicate that for various reasons. So that's a sort of ethical package. But some will say, well, if you're an atheist, you don't believe in God and you don't have a religious worldview. Okay, so where does your ethics come from? So that's a question I ask quite often, and I want to know your answer. But there's also a similar question that can be asked of someone who's got an extreme skepticism and almost a solipsistic view, right? You know, the solipsistic view, I think, is roughly, you know, I'm pretty sure I exist, but I'm not sure anything else does. And you might take that even further and say, maybe I don't either. In that context, if we really believe that, you know, we each other might not even exist. Why we should? Why should we even care about each other? You know, what, how how can we ground ethics if we're not sure reality even exists? So, you can answer either or both of those questions with, you know, how have you come to think about ethics, right and wrong, and good and bad? Yeah. So I have I have an answer. Um, it it might not be a satisfying answer for listeners, but basically. I guess, <laughs> even though I just said that I'm not, that I don't know if real if anything is real, I also said that I generally operate assuming that things I can observe are real. And so yeah. my impression, my guess, what seems right to me is that morality is um, comes from psychology, that it's like humans and other animals probably evolved morality, and that it's something that we have in our minds, the way that like hunger is something we have. Like, yeah. People don't ask like, well, why should you be hungry? And there's no philosophy for why to be hungry. We just are hungry. So my impression is that, like what I believe is that humans just evolved morality and that um, most people, not 100%, but that the vast majority of people have an internal moral sense. Yeah. Um, and I think that I have an internal moral sense and it is like, it pushes me to do certain things. Um. And my internal moral sense is mostly focused on, well, we'll get more into that later, I guess. And how much of uh, your ethics as a kid, I guess, when you were growing up, do you think was just that sort of basic default human evolved kit? And how much, you know, social influence or influence from your parents, family and friends was there as well? Was it? Oh, that's a really good point. I feel like, you um, you know what? Actually, I think I was wrong when I said ethics is a psychological phenomenon, because you're right. There's a part of it that comes in society. I think for me, I'm much more, my ethics is much more internal. So that's probably why I thought of it as a psychological phenomenon, because for me, that is how it feels. But I think that probably for a lot of other people, they're more influenced by society. And I'm also influenced by society. Like, yeah. but over time, I've been kind of rejecting more of what society wants of me and focusing more on what my internal natural biology seems to want, I guess. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so have you can heard that term that like ethics can be called like normative, which yeah. to me implies normal, which implies that it has to do with what society thinks. And I remember when I learned that being really surprised because I thought like ethics has nothing to do with what society thinks. Like ethics is what I want to do inside. And I have to, I kind of felt like one of the foremost obligations that I have is to reject what society is telling me if what they're saying is wrong. Yeah. Um, so it was like, think, how could ethics come from society? That doesn't even make sense to me. But I think yeah. you're right that it does also. It, it does. And I think it, you know, it comes from society as well and it ends up in our psychology. So I think ultimately you're right. That's that's where our decisions are taken. But I think of normative ethics, it is about norms, but I don't think of normative 
ethics as being, you know, taking norms from society. I think it's about what should the norms be. So, it's, it's, so whereas a descriptive ethics might just say, where does our ethics happen to come from? You know, it's evolved, it's cultural, there are traditions, um, you know, we feel a sort of groupishness that can lead us to aggression, but we also feel compassion for kin and group members, you know, so that's just a describing where it came from without saying whether it's good or bad ethics. It's just, that's how it came to be. Um, whereas a normative ethics is explicitly putting a value judgment in and saying, okay, but what should it be? And I'm so glad you told me that. Okay. That's, yeah. I that's think I, that's so the way I think. People of are it, not yeah. saying that. Okay. So when people say norm, they don't mean that we should do what society says. They mean, let's decide what society should do, should I, do. I think so. I think that's what, when, when people that's talk about- That's great, that's a big relief. So when people say social norms, they're normally saying this is what the social norms are now. But when people talk about normative ethics, that's, you know, here's what's, what should ethics should actually be, correct ethics. So you might say, look, descriptively, society have developed this ethic, but normatively, you know, that's wrong. So you could have a society that's developed a racist, sexist ethic. You know, those are the social norms. They're racist and they're sexist. But normatively, those are incorrect. And because of, you know, philosophy or logic or some other thinking we've done or or an emotional response that those normatively, those social norms currently are wrong. That's fantastic. Okay. That makes, that seems that more people are thinking of ethics as something that basically it should come either from inside of us or maybe from philosophy and then we should spread it outward to society rather than thinking that we should guess we should be trying to figure out what society wants from us yeah and th- but but there are people who think who who erode that boundary so there are some people who say look there isn't really a normative ethics there's just what we psychologically feel is right and wrong what society feels is right and wrong and i think that's problematic because when you look at how many awful social norms and traditions there are and how many negative aspects of human psychology there are it seems weird to me to not condemn those when they cause obvious harms so i'm like no i'm quite comfortable condemning certain social norms i can understand descriptively why they've come about but i have a different basis for my ethics that allows me to normatively condemn those things because they're bloody awful but there are people who will say you know, it's just, we just describe ethics and, and that's all there is. And others who will take a relativistic approach, which says, you know, there isn't an independent normative ethics of right and wrong. Ethics really should just be whatever a group has decided is right and wrong. And I'm like, well, no, because quite often groups decide on ethics that cause obvious needless harm. So normatively, a group's ethics can be wrong. So, so not everybody makes that sort of distinction and not everybody allows us to step back and look at social norms and say, are they good or bad social norms? Some people just say, well, they're, they're the norms. That's it. That's the end of the conversation, regardless of the victims. So for me, my, um, I have this intuitive, I, it's going to be hard. I think I'm, I'm bad at talking in abstract, so it's going to be hard yeah. for me to talk about it without kind of digging into what I believe in, like who matters. Let's but do I have that. This intuitive, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to combine the two though, because I have this intuitive sense that suffering is bad. And that um, joy is good. And yeah, but so, are you sure though? Can you prove that? <laughs> I'm definitely not sure. So yeah, but, so this is, but um, I agree, right? High confidence, high enough confidence that suffering is bad. <laughs> it's in the definition of the word, right? You'd be amazed that people can argue about that on Twitter. But no, I'm with you on suffering being bad. Yeah. So um, that is something I've always felt, like since I can remember. And when I learned about utilitarianism, I got really excited because I thought finally somebody is like describing my worldview. 
that yeah. basically suffering is bad. It doesn't matter who's suffering and we should try to reduce suffering and we should try to increase good feelings. So I agree with utilitarianism um, mostly, maybe not a hundred percent, but like 99% that would describe my worldview. And then when I learned about moral psychology, so in undergrad, I studied psychology and I did a little bit of work in moral psychology. Um, so when I learned about that, I thought, okay, this explains why I have these internal feelings because I, my idea that suffering is bad, I don't think it came from society. I felt like I was often bothered by things that society said were okay, um, that I thought were bad because they caused suffering. Yeah. So I'm sure society did have some influences, but mostly they were pulling me in different directions, like pulling me to think that certain people's suffering maybe does matter more than other people's. And I feel like to me that, well, I don't know, society also maybe influenced me to believe in equality because I learned a lot about like America, I'm American. And um, our country is like very inspired by the idea of equality. And so I did learn a lot about equality in school. And that also could have influenced me to think that that everyone's suffering is equal. But um, what I was going to say is that when I learned about utilitarianism, I felt like that really matches my worldview. And so I started calling myself a utilitarian. But then I met other people who are philosophy, who are more into philosophy and know more about philosophy than I do, uh, who are utilitarian, such as my amazing boyfriend. And... Oh, yeah. A shout out to Robert Yeaman, if anyone's ever heard of him. He's awesome. Look him up. He um he and other utilitarians believe in utilitarianism because they believe that it is like logical and that there is like a logical reason to believe in it. And I guess I've never been sold on that. To me, it always just felt like, well, I believe in it because my I evolved to feel this way, or like something within me is pushing me to want to reduce suffering. So I don't think that I could, I mean, maybe this is why I should never be a philosopher. I don't think I could meet somebody else who says like, well, I'm a sociopath and I don't care about suffering. I don't think I could convince the sociopath why utilitarianism is the right worldview. I think I would just say, I feel that it is. And I understand that you feel that it's not. And like, let's do something else. Um, yeah. 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 So I, I guess what I'm saying is, I think they mostly come from my evolution and or maybe my society, but I don't think I have like a, philosophical explanation for why they're right and i've heard other people explain why utilitarianism would be right and it just never resonated with me it always felt like you know people will say well i don't like suffering so therefore i know suffering is bad for everyone and i guess i just think well you know i mean like an analogy again jumping forward to something you often bring up later you'll say like well why isn't it bad to like hurt break a rock you know i don't like being broken but i don't mind a rock being broken and i would say the difference is I just don't care about others being broken. I only care about others suffering. And the only way I can explain that is that's what I care about. So I'm trying to convince somebody to behave more morally. I've never tried to convince them to become a utilitarian because I just personally don't feel like the argument for being a utilitarian makes sense to me, even though I am one. Yeah. What I usually do is I try to pick somebody who already cares about suffering, which most people do. And then I just try to show them how whoever I'm concerned about is suffering. So like, Based on moral psychology, my understanding is like 99% of people or at least 90% of people feel really negatively when someone else is suffering. And so I will just kind of hope they're one of those people and then try to like show them how something is causing suffering that I don't want them to do anymore. And if they're not, if I determine that I don't think that they have empathy or that they care about suffering, I'll just move on. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And I think... Uh, 
um, I find the philosophy fascinating, but my core is the same as yours, which is this sense of, you know, morality is about anything. It's about valuing the perspective of the other, if you like, right? It's, it's um, I don't like suffering. I experience it as negative. That's the definition of the word. And morality is, in a way, just my choice to care about other beings that also don't like suffering. Um, so it seems sort of silly in a way and oversimplistic and almost tautological, but I'm like, well, that that is the core of it. And I'm also quite comfortable drawing a link between the badness of suffering and the bad, the moral or the ethical badness of an action. I think that's sort of almost definitionally, again, what most sensible morality is about, is needlessly causing suffering is a bad thing to do because the suffering is bad to the victim. And, you know, what more do you need? And I've tried to frame the sentientism idea as actually quite neutral on which ethical system you might use. So utilitarianism is one that often people think of because people like Peter Singer and others who've obviously done a lot of work in thinking about uh, sentiocentric moral scope. But at the same time, you could also take a bunch of different approaches. So there's feminist care ethics, relational approaches, um, deontological approaches, virtue ethics. And I think you can still apply the sort of compassion you feel through those different ethical systems as well. Um, I'm reasonably drawn to utilitarianism, but I'm, I, I'm personally, I'm more comfortable with the sort of broader idea of consequentialism, which is just saying that outcomes matter because the outcomes are the suffering or the flourishing of a sentient being, and those are consequences. So ultimately, that's what I care about. So the reason I want to be virtuous is because of those consequences. The reasons I want to follow a set of rules or deontological ethical heuristics is if they give good outcomes. So I'm quite comfortable with that consequentialism. With I don't want to go off on a tangent because I'm supposed to be interviewing you, but with utilitarianism, personally, I get a little bit nervous around some of the approaches to utilitarianism that involve quantifying things, that involve aggregating them, that involve even offsetting. You know, can you offset the suffering of one with the flourishing of another? I'm like, well, okay, I can sort of see from a policy perspective how you that framework might make sense in your spreadsheet but my suffering certainly can't be offset by anybody else's, right? I still feel it. So, so there's something there that also draws me back to the, the importance of the individual being. And so, you know, I don't know, there's lots yeah, of different I, things. I was so excited when, um, so we originally connected on Twitter and I was so excited when I saw your profile and started reading about sentientism because of what you just said, that I, I like utilitarianism but I do have certain concerns about it. And one of my concerns is about the offsetting thing. Like, yeah. I don't like the idea of, um, I, I heard that if you're really a true utilitarian, then you would believe that if you could cause harm to somebody who's already miserable and that harm would increase the happiness of a happy person, that could be the morally right thing to do, depending on the quantity of suffering you're giving the unhappy person and the quantity of joy you're giving the happy person. And that seems very wrong to me. Um, but again, I didn't have like a logical reason for why it's wrong. It's just like, nope, checking in with the part of me inside that told me to be utilitarian to begin with. And that part says like, no, 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 don't do that. So when I heard about sentientism, what I really liked about it was that it had the things I liked about utilitarianism, which is like basically everyone who can feel matters. Yeah. Um, and you don't matter more because you're like rich or human, <laughs> but, um, it didn't have the parts that I don't know if I'm hundred percent on board with or that I'm not on board with. It just is like a little vaguer, basically. It's like yeah. less specific. Yeah. It's more pluralistic. So I really, yeah. really like that. <laughs> Good. Well, in, in a way, it's a cop out, right? I'm I'm sort of backing away from some of these really difficult philosophical issues, but that's deliberately because I think the baseline is most important, and that that's what I'd love to come on to next. Really. So you've got this 
strong ethical stance around you know it's about the suffering of others or the flourishing of others and that's that seems to be the core and i absolutely share that but there's an obvious challenge there okay well who, who do we think about in that context you've mentioned already do we care about the you know can a rock suffer well no so we shouldn't care about it um but for most people i think you're right apart from you know sociopaths and a small very small percentage of people we intuitively and psychologically and culturally have this compassion for some others at least but the question is okay well who and in a way that's one of the really important things about this descriptive ethic that just says well look we grew up to have compassion with the people who are in our family in our group that are like us but normatively shouldn't we stretch that shouldn't we push that shouldn't we care about all humans right so so there's this and it's another classic balance between the sort of groupish compassion we might start out with and then intellectually how we push that and challenge it and stretch it to try and improve the norms so it'd be interesting to know your journey about how you went about thinking about that moral scope because you're not in a position where you just care about some humans or all humans you clearly as you've said already go way beyond that and that's a journey that i think happened started very early for you as well so how did you go through that yeah journey yeah so Obviously, I'm like focused on animals. I'm like an animal welfare or animal rights activist or animal lawyer, depending on how you put it. Um, so I care about animals a lot. But my story is that, and yeah, I care about, I think suffering is bad no matter who it is. So even if they're not an animal, if if an alien could suffer, I know that you're like, your little thing on Twitter has, your yeah. picture on Twitter has like an alien in it. If an alien can suffer, then I'm concerned about that. And if a computer can suffer, I'm concerned about that. And I believe you um, I wrote, don't know if I believe you wrote a college a college essay about uh, yes, suffering robots. And I got in trouble, so I wrote an essay about why we should make sure that people are kind to robots. If or it was basically like we should figure out if robots have feelings, and if they do, we should be kind to them and try not to make them suffer. And the professor, or the not professor, the teaching assistant or whatever, the grad student, like failed me and made me rewrite her new paper because she said it was just so absurd. And then not about that because as I've gotten older I keep hearing more and more people talk seriously about like what if computers are sentient and we should be kind to them so I'm very concerned about anyone who can suffer and I really don't I don't personally know what sentience comes from and it seems like science hasn't really figured it out so in my mind I think at any moment we may discover that there is something that's sentient that we didn't know about and I think I will want us to be kind to whatever that is and I'm very worried that people will not want to be kind to them because People don't even want to be kind to chickens. And we know chickens are sentient. So, um, but you asked about my story, how I came to basically be concerned about beings that have feelings beyond just like humans. When I was a little kid, I mean, it's just always been that way, I guess. When I was a little kid, um, I grew up with dogs. Like since I was really little, we had this dog Fido and I really, really liked her. And I just, I guess I just assumed from the beginning that she had feelings. It really never occurred to me that she didn't. Um, if you would like step on her toe by accident, she would like yelp and like jump away. And that's, that seems like she's in pain. Um, so really I never questioned it. I don't think, I really don't think anyone ever, I think no one really doubts that animals or not no one. I think very few people actually doubt that animals can suffer. I think the people who doubt it are either kind of doing that thing I was doing where I'm saying like, maybe nothing's real. Like they're sort of they're sort of like looking for proof of things that they intuitively know are probably real. Um, and then they're not looking hard enough and then they're not finding the proof, maybe because of motivated reasoning. Like, yeah. 
somebody who wants to be able to do experiments on animals and therefore wants to convince himself that animals can't suffer. Um, or I think some people who believe that animals don't have feelings are very rare people that there's something different about their psychology where they just don't automatically kind of pick up on the sense that most people do that animals have feelings. So it seems silly to even be like explaining why I think animals have feelings because I think it's yeah. obvious intuitively and that science supports it. But um, yeah, ever since I was little, I felt connected to Fido and then died when I was young and I was the one who found her and it was really horrible. And then we got another dog and then um, my parents bred her and she had puppies and I got to like raise one of the puppies and I, her name was Nathan Rover and Nathan were the other dogs. And I was like super close with both of them and just didn't ever really think of them as being, I mean, yeah, I just felt like they were my family members and they had feelings and I never questioned any of that. And I think most people don't question that about their own dogs. It's only when it comes to like, um animals that are not pets that people start to like somehow not believe that they have feelings um and I used to be that way with birds so birds were like I didn't have compassion for birds as a child they just seemed like kind of these feathery objects that were so different from people um I didn't really think of them at all as being like my dogs until when I was 11 my parents bought me a bird as a present and as soon as I got to know him his name was Conrad like everything changed and he was obviously someone, not something like he loved being around people and he hated being alone. If you walked out of the room, he would scream and scream and scream until you came back. Like, you know, yeah. rock doesn't do that. Like the he message obviously is clear, was yeah. scared. Yeah. To be alone. And, um, he like, you know, he liked certain things. Like he loved the pencil sharpener. If we made, if we sharpened pencils back then, your listeners might not know. In the olden days, there were these things called pencils. It was almost like a computer because you could write, but you could only write. You couldn't do anything else. And you had to like draw out every single letter yourself. So we used to yeah, on, sharpen on our like pencils. Paper. This, this on stuff. paper. You have paper still. That should be in a museum. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Such a, a my, my, I'm not a boomer, but my, my, my children say it's a mindset thing. So I still qualify, apparently. But anyway. So, um, yeah, he loved the pencil sharpener. He would like imitate the sound whenever we made it. Um, and like when we made the, it make that sound and he would just, if there's something he liked, he would run over to it and sing. And if there's something he didn't like, he would run away from it and scream. Um, so he obviously had feelings and I got really close with him. And then um, one day I was like in middle school and I was eating a piece of chicken and it was fried chicken and it was really good. And then I was touching it and there was something about like the way that it was sort of a little bouncy or something like the feeling it was a slightly rubbery feeling or something to the chicken that it reminded me of how his body feels like it didn't feel like my body or a rock or the dogs but it kind of felt like him and then I realized oh my god chicken is a bird and then I was suddenly like chickens probably have feeling or like I, I guess I should have known but I suddenly was just like they're like him. So then I stopped eating chicken, but I would still eat other meat. Um, but that was like the beginning of me becoming very concerned about chickens. Yeah, um, yeah that's the story. <laughs> and was it, because um, that, that's another classic break point for many of my guests, because it's quite common to have experiences with companion animals or even wild animals as a child and to identify with them in quite a rich way. Although it sounds like you had a particularly close relationship. But then... Um, most people just don't make the connection to products and food and farmed animals and uh, and even other types of wild animals as well. Um, 
so you had that turning point with chicken there where you just sort of saw the connection and the light went on and you stopped eating chickens i guess i'm interested in two things one is has that broadened out across other sentient animal products and what's the process of making those changes been like for you has it been psychologically difficult socially difficult or was it just sort of easy and you go on with it it was psychologically wonderful but socially difficult I would say as a child because um so I guess I wasn't a child child but I was still like underage a minor living with my parents and um they were fine with me not eating chickens and they in fact said it makes sense because there were this is like such a effective altruism 2022 kind of thing to say but they said this way back in the day and way before infective altruism existed they said like well there are a lot of chickens that get killed for food like if you eat chickens you're killing a lot of animals and if you don't want to kill animals you should just eat beef because then you'll be killing fewer animals um and i think that's a really good point and i recommend that today to anybody who wants to help animals but still likes eating meat like just try to stop eating chickens and fish and eat bigger animals and you'll be causing a lot less suffering also um it's treated really badly and it's one of those really difficult things because it's for someone who has a strong ethical stance about non-human animals and farming and um but that feels like a really difficult thing to admit but factually it just is the case right you look at the deaths per meal ratio and that's that's the stance so then you get into difficult positions about okay well you know reducing or gradualism versus the sort of clarity of veganism and so on so it's but i find that sort of it's difficult because i think we need to acknowledge both i think we need the ethical clarity but you need to acknowledge the actual fact whereas sometimes having the ethical clarity leads people to deny the actual fact of the matter that you know when you look at the scale of suffering and death you know fish and chicken are at the top of the pile and the rest is statistically you know pretty small numbers so it's an interesting interaction there between the sort of facts and the ethics and i didn't really have yeah, a point I there but it's just it's for tricky. a lot of people i think it's a hard thing to it's a hard thing to understand or to accept because i'm not sure exactly why i think it might be because cows are mammals and people are mammals and so it's easier for a lot of people i think to emphasize with cows yeah. although yeah. i'm not 100 percent sure that that's right because that's not how I feel at all to the point where it's a little hard for me to even imagine that that could be how someone would feel to me birds are so cute and they're so sweet and I want to like be close to them and be their friend and like I like cows too but I actually feel much more drawn to birds so yeah it's hard for me to imagine that most people would most people yeah. are more drawn to cows I think and then I think another part of it is that um like the environmental movement is really against eating beef. Yeah. And so a lot of people sort of think like if one movement is against something, it must be bad and in all ways or something. So they think, well, because the environmental movement is against eating beef, that must be worse for animal welfare as well or something. I'm not sure. I don't really know why, but I do agree that most people don't think of that way. Um, I think, oh, another thing is that people really like eating beef more, I think, than they like eating chicken. I think beef is more expensive and it's considered more of a delicacy and also it's considered to be like less healthy. And people think of chicken as like the food that they ought to be eating because it's like more affordable and they believe it's healthier. So maybe they think 
how could it be that the food that I really want to eat beef is actually the thing I should be eating rather than chicken, the food that I always thought I ought to eat for the sake of my health and the environment. It might be like too good to be true that somebody's saying like really stop eating chicken, (laughs) keep eating beef. I don't know. And that's one of the things I find frustrating because there's such a cultural inertia around animal product consumption, right? It's just assumed that we have to keep doing it. So then the debates about chicken, beef, fish, fit within that structure. So someone will say, well, for environmental reasons, we need to move from beef to chicken. And for ethical reasons, we need to move from chickens to beef. And of course, I'm there just tearing my hair out going, plants, plants. (laughs) There's absolutely no reason for us to consume any animal product whatsoever. Plants are edible. There's the answer. You know, there is no dilemma here. There's There's a much easier, much better alternative on every front. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't ignore the differentiation within the problem in terms of the scale of suffering and the environmental impacts. Those are, they are differentiated. It just so happens that plants win on every criteria. So that's, just, <laughs> so that's, yeah. that's, my, that's my frustration with it. But at the same time, we, we have to recognize the grading and whether central gravity of the problem is where the scale of the problem is as well. We don't flatten that whole space, even if I ethically reject it. Yeah, and I am vegan today. Um, so what I was going to say was going, uh, stop eating, eating chicken was pretty easy because my parents were okay with it. Yeah. But then I decided I didn't want to eat any animals just because once you, I don't know, for me, it was like once I had the taste of not hurting chickens, it felt very good. And I yeah. wanted to do more of that. Yeah. Um, so it's almost like to me, like an addiction or something, it's just like tempting. Like, yeah, it feels really good to feel like you're doing the right thing. I love that feeling and I want I to do it that. more. So, yeah, because there's this trope <laughs> so, that it's, there's this trope that it's a sacrifice that we're giving something up, but I feel the same way as you do. It's like, it, it's actually freeing. It's a, you know, it's a joyful thing to be able to escape from. Yeah. I love that. It was, I felt really good. And usually if I hear somebody says, oh, I just went vegetarian or something like that. I always tell them, congratulations. I'm so happy for you because. For me, I was really happy. It wasn't, it, it was awesome. So, so much so that I wanted to do more, more of it. So I didn't yeah. want to eat other animals. And that was really upsetting for my parents because they had a belief that um, it was important to eat animal products for human health, which yeah. is not true. I think that's just totally debunked now, but yeah. this was before Google and um, it just wasn't obvious to me even that that was wrong. Like nowadays, if somebody says that, I can argue against them. But at the time, I didn't know any better. So I thought they're probably right. I probably do need to eat it for my health. And so um, in my mind, I was just like, my health is not as important. You're saying it would be bad for my health, but it's bad for their health to be killed, was basically my thinking. So that's not a good way to convince your parents of something. Like my argument was like, let me die to save animals. Which yeah. Yeah. Word to kids out there, that does not convince parents. Parents <laughs> yeah. don't want their kids to die. Yeah. So I was not a good advocate. What I should have said is like, it's actually healthier to be vegan, but I didn't know that at the time. So, um, and there was like a stereotype of vegans being unhealthy, which is wrong, yeah. but yeah. that was what was believed. So, um, so, in, so when you ask what was socially hard, I would say yes, because my parents really, really didn't want me to be vegetarian and I wanted to be vegetarian. And so we had a lot of conflicts about it and I kept eating beef basically until they gave me permission to stop eating it, which was when I was like, it was like my beginning, right before my senior year of high school, my mom said, I know that you only eat beef when I'm watching. So she would like, she basically laid down the rule of what she thought was necessary for my health 
to have me kill a few animals if possible. So it was like once a week I had to eat beef and she yeah. would put it in front of me and watch me eat it. And so this also is a good way to make your kid really not enjoy eating meat. <laughs> um, like it didn't feel like a treat at all. It was like medicine. So then she said, I know you only eat beef when I'm watching you. And um, I'm afraid that when you go to college, you won't eat meat anymore and you'll get sick because she really thought that like, it's dangerous to not eat meat, which is totally wrong, but that's what she really believed. Yeah. And so she said, I'll let you go vegetarian now while I'm here to care for you. And then I can like nurse you back to health and you'll like eventually learn and then you'll be able to eat meat when you're in college. Yeah. And of course, I just never got sick and I just never ate meat again. Yeah. Um, and then eventually when I went to college, I went vegan fully, which was amazing. It was a similar where I just, the reason I was eating eggs and milk was because I really liked like pizza and cake and stuff that had yeah. those products in them. And I thought it would be a sacrifice to give those things up. So nobody forced me to eat those things. But when I did stop eating them, I felt so happy. Um, and so I wish I, yeah, if I had known how happy I would feel, I probably would have done it earlier. And also there's a lot of vegan cake and vegan pizza, which I didn't know at the time. Oh yeah. yeah. And it's getting better all the time. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Thank you for telling the story. So would you, just to wrap up the ethics section, would you just, do you think sentience and the capacity to suffer, is that a useful way of setting your moral scope or do you think about, you know, the boundaries in some, some different way or? Yeah, my main focus is about sentience. Yeah. That's the main thing I think about. Um, and I think that when it comes to sentience, the biggest question or the biggest thing I think about is just how do we know who's sentient? Like yeah. are bugs sentient and stuff like that. Um, but outside of sentience, I don't think it's very important to I don't think anything else is very important. Um, that said, like I mentioned earlier, my ethics basically just come from internal internally and I don't believe that I have like a I don't try to use or pretend to have any kind of like external philosophy or like objective criteria for knowing what's right or wrong yeah so there are definitely times when I feel an urge that is not in line with sentientism and I when that happens I kind of accept it and I'll try to sort of I'll try to find some happy middle ground where I can do the thing that feels right to me without like I don't know like a compromise so basically, what I'm trying to say is I do sometimes have feelings that are outside of function to them. And um, I just kind of try to accept that and not judge myself for that. So one example, this is going to sound so crazy, is like my land, my old landlords were so nice and they wanted to give me a present. So they gave me a tomato plant and I had never had a plant really like that. Well, I guess I had plants before, but they always died. For some reason, this plant like didn't die and it grew and it got bigger and bigger. And I kept watering it and taking care of it. And then it died. And I was really upset. And they were like, well, of course it's going to die. Tomato plants die every year. And I was like, why did you not warn me? And then they were like guilty. They felt guilty for giving it to me. So that made me really upset. And um, I kept saying to myself, well, tomato plants don't have feelings. So why am I upset? But for some reason, I did feel upset. And then since I don't really have any explanation for where my ethics any like justification for my ethics come from, I guess it does kind of bother me a little bit sometimes when plants die. But on the other hand, I eat plants and I buy flowers, like potted flowers, and I do a lot of things that involve killing plants. I don't usually feel guilty about it. So I think it's just like, if you start caring for anything, I guess you can feel sad if that thing dies, yeah. even if you know it doesn't have feelings. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I'm 99% 
attention to. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. And and you've heard me say before, but I'm much more interested in making sure that all sentient beings are included, and I'm less worried about you know whether people want to go beyond that. That's that you know I'm quite open minded about that. I just want to make sure that no sentient being gets excluded from the moral consideration. So yeah. Well, thank you. That's been a fascinating story. So <laughs> the the final big question, arguably just as big, is um, how can we make a better future? So we're in this situation where I think you and I roughly share a sort of naturalistic way of thinking, despite your deep scepticism about whether anything exists at all. Um, <laughs> and we, we have at least this broadly sort of sentient-centric um, view that cares about sentience and suffering and flourishing, you know, whatever they are and wherever they are, it's all salient to us. Um, nearly everybody on the planet at the moment disagrees with us. Um, they might, they might, they might agree in one sense theoretically, um, but there are at least some areas of their thinking where they either have poor quality epistemology or believe things completely based on faith or arbitrary fabrications. So that's extremely common around the world, and you can see that in established religion, but you can also see that in QAnon and homeopathy and all sorts of other other areas. I won't list too many because it'll probably annoy people. Um, but you know that's a that's a deep problem. Um, and on the sentiocentric side, while most people would say, of course, I care about, you know, non-human animal suffering, they just don't put that into practice. And it strikes me often that that's really because of one of the things we've been talking about is some of the other aspects of human psychology, but mostly really powerful social norms that tell us it's okay to believe stuff based on faith or just based on things you're told. Um, and it's also okay to, for example, farm clearly sentient animals for fairly trivial human reasons. So, so in that context, how do you think about the future positive change? And you can either talk about sort of utopian visions of where we might get to, but I'm also fascinated by, you know, the work you're doing with legal impact for chickens and the role of the law in driving positive change for human and non-human animals. So there's too broad a question, but you can go anywhere you like about thinking about a positive future. Thank you so much for asking. Um... So, yeah, my vision for a positive future is that animals should be treated better. But I guess I'm not, I don't know if I'm really a visionary. I think I'm pretty concrete in my thinking. Yeah. So mostly what I focus on is just how to get animals to be treated a little bit better tomorrow than they are today. That said, if I were to have a utopian vision, then it would be just, yeah, like no more animal suffering. Like animals should be... People should be concerned about their feelings, just like they're concerned about people's feelings and they should be protected. And I mean, I guess in a true utopia, they were just suffering would end. Like all beings would just feel joy all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but my data, my mind doesn't really, I don't know. I don't think I'm a really big picture thinker. I'm a very like concrete, specific thinker. That's just how my mind goes. So I'm very focused on like, this is the reality we're in, I think, where, um, in the U.S., where I live, 10 billion chickens, approximately maybe 9 billion, are treated really badly and then killed for food every year, and way, way more fish, um, and about a billion other, like, land animals. And then worldwide, I think it's, like, 100 billion chickens, I think, are killed for food every year in the world, or maybe it's 100 billion land animals. Most I of think them it's chicken. 100 billion land animals, but most of them, are, most okay. of those are chickens, yeah. Okay, so a lot of land animals. And then there's way more fish. And my understanding is people don't even know how many fish are killed because people don't even count fish. They yeah. like weigh them. So if you like, it's like if they decide 
they measure fish in their weight rather than in the number of individuals. And so then you get into shrimps and crustaceans terrific. and it's, yeah, it's countless trillions. Yeah. So my focus is just how can we improve the welfare of animals who are being killed? And I'm only focused on the U.S. right now because that's yeah. where I live and I'm a lawyer and um, American, the American legal system is really um, sort of separate from other countries' legal systems. So the way that we can do things here doesn't necessarily extrapolate too much to other countries and what other countries can do doesn't always extrapolate, usually doesn't extrapolate to what we can do. But my focus is just like, can I improve the welfare of animals killed for food in the US? So it's very, very like narrow. I'm not, I don't have any plan to end factory farming um, or to end animal farming or to end all suffering. Although like, I would love if somebody came up with a plan to do those things. Right. But I'm just focused on like, right now, how can all these chickens and other animals in the US be a little bit better off? And that is a big deal because 10 billion chickens is a big deal. Or yeah. I think it's 9 billion chickens, 10 billion land animals. Um, so I started a nonprofit called Legal Impact for Chickens. And like I mentioned earlier, our goal is to make factory farm cruelty a liability. So basically what I mean by that is um, I want executives and companies to think about how they're treating animals and to worry that they're going to get in trouble if they are treating the animals too badly. So um, I, I'm not trying to make it like illegal to farm animals because I have no idea how anyone would ever do that. But what I just want to happen is that if you're farming animals, you worry about whether you're treating them well enough and then you treat them a little bit better and that would improve animal welfare. And maybe on the margins, it could decrease how much people are excited about investing in factory farming because it's going to be a little bit more of like a costly industry to invest in. Um, But the main focus isn't that the main focus is just literally, I want the animals to be treated better. So our goal is to focus on bringing civil lawsuits that have the potential to um, improve animal welfare and, or yeah, that are targeted at improving animal welfare and it's impact litigation. So we are trying to bring novel lawsuits that nothing like this has been done before, but that if we succeed, it can be a huge win for animals to back up in a lot of legal systems, including in the U S there's a distinction between civil lawsuits and criminal lawsuits. Criminal ones are usually like, when somebody gets arrested and then they're prosecuted by the government and then they might go to prison. Civil lawsuits are usually like somebody breaks a contract with someone else and the person who was harmed can sue the person who did it or somebody hits somebody else and the person who got hit sues the hitter. So we are focused on civil lawsuits because they're much easier uh, for people who don't work for the government to bring and I don't work for the government. And we're looking to build a team of civil litigators. So if you are a American lawyer or an American law student, and you want to help animals, um, please reach out. And I guess American lawyer would include if you're a lawyer from another country, but you have like an LLM in America so that you can practice law here. Um, please reach out because we're hiring. But yeah, basically right now, it's really, really hard to use the law to help animals. And we're kind of trying to like change that and make it easier. So um, one of our big focuses is private civil enforcement of the cruelty laws. So in the U.S., Again, I know your listeners are not often in the, may not be in the U.S., and I'm sorry if this is boring. Hopefully it somewhat applies. But in the U.S., we have um, every single state has a law against animal cruelty and neglect. And to some extent, these laws apply to farmed animals. There may be exemptions for farmed animals, but um, they're not usually complete exemptions. So there is something that's theoretically illegal to do to farmed animals because it's just too cruel in basically every state. So you've got something to work on at least. Yeah. 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 
But I said, theoretically, because these laws are totally under enforced when it comes to farm animals, like cops don't go to factory farms and investigate. And even when animal rights groups spend their own money to do undercover investigations to prove that something illegal is happening at a factory farm and tell the cops, usually the response is like, we don't have time for this. We're drowning with other work. Um, it's not, we don't have like the capacity to deal with it or it's not a priority or um, yeah. something like that. So, it so even if the law get... is clear, the enforcement yes. just isn't carried through. So what's the point? Yeah. Exactly. So our goal is to use private civil enforcement, basically to bring our own lawsuits to say, we're not going to be able to send you to prison, but you're violating this law and we want you to stop violating the law. And to try to get courts to at least have rulings saying that certain things are illegal. So right now, factory farms are like this lawless area where it feels like anything goes. And I don't think that's what the law actually says. So we want to get courts to say, um, no, this practice does not comply with this statute. Um, and then the hope is that we can get rulings enjoining certain full practices on factory farms, um, making certain companies improve the treatment of animals, and also create precedent that certain things are illegal so that other companies will see that and think, oh, we better not do that bad thing. Um, and also create precedent that makes it easier to sue so that other lawyers can bring more lawsuits um, about the treatment of animals. So that's Legal and Back for Chickens. And if you're interested, in working with us, please let me know. Or you were also interested, obviously. We always want all sorts of supporters, donors, volunteers, people to tweet about us, anything. We'd be really grateful. Yeah. And if you know any lawyers who like animals, forward this to them, please. Yeah, we'll point them in your direction. No, that's great. Yeah. It's a fascinating story. Thank you. <laughs> and it's and it's interesting because when I started this series of conversations, I, I guess I, I had a fairly naive view of the role of the law in driving positive social change, both human and non-human, in that, you know, it's, it's the sort of, you know, culture changes and then politics picks that up and then politics change the law and then the law comes in and it's enforced so it was almost the law is something that happens after the change but that's breathtakingly naive as you've pointed out there in that you know impact litigation um, and all sorts of other types of legal initiatives can actually lead they can actually you know shift politics and they can shift culture and they can have an impact on the the public mind as well and you've seen again i'm not a specialist in this but you look at things like you know the prop 12 case that's going on in uh, in the us at the moment the happy the elephant trials and the non-human rights project there's various attempts at un level to try and inject some concern for non-human animal ethics into the sustainable de development goals and ideas like the uncahp um there's the um, ballot initiatives. So there's a one against factory farming in Switzerland, and there's one going on in Oregon at the moment as well. Yes on IP. David Mickelson, a previous guest, is working on. So there's so many different examples, both at you know super global level UN stuff, and all the way down through nations and states, and even at very local level. You know we had there's some successes in the UK recently at rejecting planet planning permissions for a new rabbit farm. It's almost at every level there are actually productive ways you can use the law to be on the front foot but um and is it i mean do you have a general view about the role of the law in driving positive change um and how optimistic are you that things are actually shifting because it seems like there's a lot um, going on but so my general view is that the law is really important and necessary but definitely not sufficient yeah. um i want to make one caveat that again like i only really know about the american legal system and I know that a lot of countries' legal systems kind of, uh, what do you call it? They like look at each other and are influenced by each other much more than America is. 
So if you're in pretty much any other country, what I'm saying might be like shockingly irrelevant to you. But um, third is that America is much more litigious than other countries and that we have like, we're much more influenced by lawsuits here than other countries. So it's possible that the law has a, or at least that litigation probably has a bigger role to play in America than in other countries is my guess, but I really don't know. Um, so I def so, okay, I think it's necessary, but not sufficient. So why do I think it's necessary? That's the first part. Basically because I think that most people have some empathy. There are some people that have no empathy and even people who have some empathy also care about their own well-being and the well-being of their kids usually more than they care about anyone else's like even me like I'm super into animal rights but I care about myself the most you know like I spend most of my money just like buying things that I want and only a small amount of the money is spent on trying to make the world better so so because people are selfish <laughs> to various degrees I think that no amount of like social advocacy is ever going to like really stop all bad behavior and so I think we really need the law to stop bad behavior. I think that is obvious when it comes to anything other than animals. Like, there's a law against murder. We definitely have, like, a strong social norm in the sense of society all agrees, not just in the sense that they should agree, but society agrees murder is bad, and yet we still have a law against murder. And so nobody would think, well, we've really done a good job convincing people that murder is bad so we can get rid of our law against murder. Like, no, because even if most people agree murder is bad, some people might not agree and some people might agree, but then in the heat of the moment, they just do it. So that's I one think of the that things the law is for, right? It's yeah. 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 So I think even if we could really change how society thinks about animals and make a lot of people a lot more concerned about animals, if you could still make money by abusing animals and get away with it, then people are still going to do it because some people won't agree about what everyone else thinks is moral or some people will agree, but then they're, just they really, really want money more than they care, you know? So, um, and I guess litigation, I think, is necessary because litigation and law enforcement, I guess those two things, because even when we have statutes, if they're not enforced, they don't help. So like I was yeah. just saying, we have these laws that are supposed to be against um, animal cruelty and neglect. And yet anytime you see an undercover investigation for a factory farm in the U.S., I think like literally 100% of the time, it will show something illegal. I mean, maybe that's an exaggeration, but it's like there's very commonly something illegal shown. And so clearly the law is not being followed. And so I think laws are not followed if they're not enforced. So we need to enforce the law. So that's why I think the law is necessary. Then I don't think the law is sufficient, however. Um, and the reason I think it's not sufficient, wait, I should say it's necessary and it can be also helpful. Like I think the law can sometimes push things forward. Like it could, I think that like the reason the law could be the reason that people start to take animal welfare more seriously is yeah. my goal and my hope. Yeah. Um, because, you know, companies have general counsel's offices and the general counsel's office is to protect their job is to protect the company. And a big part of how they protect the company is by preventing the company from getting sued. And so they pay attention to what people are being sued for and to who won the lawsuit. And if they see that you're going to get sued and you're going to lose the lawsuit, if you do a certain thing, they will tell the CEO, we can't do that thing. Um, and so I think that we could really improve animal welfare by just having general counsels think that, know that mistreating animals is a liability and that the company will be at risk if it mistreats animals. I think that is going to be a really good thing. Um, but why the law is not sufficient, um, I guess there's a couple things. One is, like I was saying, people do violate laws, like even with the law against murder and the social norm against murder, people commit murder. And if there's 
a law against something, but no social norm against it. I think people do it even more. I'm trying to, I don't know, like underage drinking, maybe there's a law against that in the US, but most people think it's like, okay, probably. And a lot of underage drinking happens. So the law is not sufficient. I think it's really good to like win the hearts and minds too, yeah. um, to like really minimize the conduct. And then um, I also think the law isn't sufficient in the sense that usually legal change kind of follows or comes at the same time as some kind of societal change. So like as society was starting to, as I'm sorry, it's just so US centric, but in the US, as society was starting to recognize more that women deserve to be treated better, then um, legal cases came out saying that women should be treated equally. So I think it can be hard to like have the law go too far ahead of what everyone else is thinking. Yeah. But I think that other society, as animal advocates are working to make our society care more about animals, animal lawyers also should be working to make the law force people to <laughs> care about animals. Yeah. I no, think they go together. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Now, what, one of the final things I wanted to explore with you is um, with welfare improvements, so you know, focusing on factory farming, focusing on the worst treatment, um, I think, again, it's factually, factually clear that if we can improve that, that will make the lives of chickens better or at least less worse. And the scale, uh, the number of individuals we're talking about here, I mean, the potential impact there is absolutely enormous. But some people do worry that uh, welfare improvements might just be the end of the line and in some situations may even end up enabling the continuation of an industry that, you know, I personally think is fundamentally evil. <laughs> so in that context, do you think at some point we could get to the stage where animal agriculture and exploitation itself as a whole ultimately does become illegal? So, well, I kind of want to address the thing about um, whether welfare is harmful first. Yeah. So I believe this is going to be my naturalistic part of me, the part of me that's like thinking there probably is a world and that science is probably usually right about things and that what we deserve is pretty much right most of the time. From that perspective, I think that it's that uh, improving welfare is good. And that um, it's just not true that improving welfare makes, has harmful effects. I think it's just like empirically, I think that the welfareists just win empirically. I think the idea that welfare is bad is empirically wrong. Sorry, I'm repeating this so many times. It's just hard yeah. for me to phrase yeah. it exactly right. So um, I have heard this concern a lot and I understand why people are concerned because people want to, some people want to help animals and they're afraid that, like you just said, if we treat animals better, then that will like prolong factory farming. And I just think that the evidence we have does not support that. And that what the evidence actually supports is that treating animals better, if anything, will bring about the end of factory farming sooner. Yeah. And if you, it's one, this is not really a good way to find out the truth, but one sign that I'm right is like, ask the meat industry. Like the meat industry yeah. it usually fights against all welfare improvements. And why would they do that if they thought that welfare improvements are the way to save the industry? Although that said, some people in the wheat industry, I think actually do think welfare improvements are the way to save the industry. So I guess um, I guess it, it kind of cuts both ways because there definitely, I think, are people within the meat industry that think what you just said, like if we can improve the welfare, then people will like let us keep doing this forever. But I think the more common view is, yeah. no, people in the meat industry are terrified that they any attempt to improve the welfare... Yeah. 
and they'll say, this is the first step towards outlawing meat. Like they say that for everything. So they do not think that improving animal welfare is gonna, um, is gonna save their industry and keep it around for yeah. longer. At least most people in the meat industry don't think that. Um, but empirically, why I think that's not true is just, this is horrible, but um, the treatment of animals in the US is really bad. It's like probably the worst it's ever been. And there's, sorry, I'm saying in the US, but this is worldwide. I think the treatment of animals on factory farms worldwide is probably the worst it's ever been. Yeah. And the numbers are higher than they've ever been. So it just does not empirically com- match that as animals get treated worse, somehow people will notice and stop eating them. Like, um, yeah. So over the years, I think since maybe the 70s, as factory farming has gotten more intense, worldwide animals have been treated worse and worse like chickens start get putting put in battery cages when they're used for eggs they start getting bred to be so big that they can't stand up and at the same time meat production is going up and up and up and more and more animals are being used so i don't think it makes sense to believe that treating animals better makes factory farming happen i think that's just not right and then um okay so that's one piece of empirical evidence another thing is maybe this isn't evidence but it's kind of like a logical explanation for why we should expect that animal welfare improvements will not end or will not uh, prolong factory farming is that most people do not know how badly animals are treated on factory farms. And that's because a, it's really hard to get footage of what happens on a factory farm because factory farms will pass law, will um, lobby for laws successfully to like called ag laws to make it yeah. illegal to film on them. And then even when people, um, even when it's legal, they, you know, try really hard to stop people from filming. And when people do film, um, it's really hard to get the footage shown on the news because usually news outlets will say this is too upsetting. And even when it's put on Facebook, Facebook will put like a little warning over it saying it's too upsetting. So I think people really don't know what's happening on factory farms. And so the idea that letting it get as bad as possible would be the thing that would um, make it stop doesn't make any sense. That logic when people say that like improving animal welfare will make it go on for longer, I think the, the main logic is they think people will be okay with it because the welfare is improved. But I think the truth is people don't even know how bad it is. And so it being really bad is not making it end because people don't even know. And then another piece of empirical evidence I have is that when it comes to humans, um, I don't think that is how people emotionally react to other humans. I'm trying to remember exactly where I'm getting this from, but I have a vague sense that there's studies indicating that people feel more empathy for other people whose situation is like not as bad and that when your situation gets to be like really bad at some point it's harder to have empathy so maybe this is wrong but i have the impression that like if you see somebody who's just like you but they're having a bad day you might have more empathy for them than if it's somebody who like they have everything wrong in their life and they're totally unlike you because their life is so extremely bad so yeah my guess is that if anything as we improve animal welfare, people will start saying, you know, they'll see like the cow in a field, which would be like a pretty good situation compared to a factory farm. And then they see the cow's baby being taken away and they'll be really sad about that. Whereas when you see a cow in a factory farm living in poop and their baby's being taken away, maybe you're just so horrified by the whole thing. You don't even compute like, oh my God, she just had her baby taken just away. So alien, so, yeah. Yeah, so I just think there's no evidence to support the idea that improving animal welfare will prolong factory farming. And I think if anything, everything points in the other direction um yeah that's my answer yeah thank you sorry was there another part to your question that i forgot to answer because i 
Should no, there was, well, the, 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 other, the other question was this sort of utopian one, which was, you know, yeah. do you think at some point the exploitation and needless suffering and killing of animals will be illegal? And I guess there's one I, I just, you know, there's a bit of my brain that just likes a bit of utopian thinking because it helps with some existential hope occasionally, um, but also because you can see glimmers of it. Um, so I guess two things. One is, you know, the SNIP ballot initiative in Oregon is really interesting because in simple terms, it's doing what you suggested, which is saying, well, we have an animal cruelty law. We're just going to remove all the exemptions. You know, who who could object to that, right? No one likes animal <laughs> cruelty. But if that's successful, and it's vanishingly unlikely to be successful, but it's I think it's a brilliant, you know, public relations and a you know legal exercise and will shift the, the window, if you like, of what's, what's conceivable and help make the point. If that did actually get implemented, as I understand it, it would render Oregon a sanctuary state where it was illegal to needlessly harm or kill animals, therefore ending animal agriculture in the entire state, which is partly why it's unlikely to happen. Um, so you can you can you can imagine it, and I, I think the other context in which you can imagine it is you just think about intrahuman law. So I had you know another snarky vegan on Twitter experience recently where you know. People will talk as though personal consumption choices should be exempt from ethics, and they should particularly be exempt from ethics when the victim is a non-human. So it, this is the usual thing of, um, you know, it's my choice what to eat and what to consume. Um, you, as an annoying vegan on Twitter, are forcing me to turn away from the products I love and have cultural resonance. And I made a very simple point, which probably wasn't constructive in the moment, to say, well. I'm not forcing you. I'm just tweeting, right, and pointing out the suffering and death caused and the catastrophic environmental impact and the dangers for human health. I'm just pointing these things out. I'm not forcing you, but be ready because at some point you are going to be forced because it, ultimately it will be illegal, right? We The word vegan won't even be needed anymore because everybody will be. It will be illegal to be cruel to animals and that will end animal agriculture. So just as fair warning you know, get ready. Why not get ahead of the game? Because this is, this is where we're going. Um, and on You're the one way, that's an even more <laughs> annoying vegan thing to say on Twitter. Right. But I genuinely think it's true. Right. It's, I, I do think that's where we'll get to at some point. Um, and I think a lot is required to, to get there, but you can see it. And I think in a sense, many, many humans around the world already conceptually agree with the principles that would underpin that decision, even though culturally it's complete anathema at the moment. But I don't know, maybe that is just too ut utopian, but we'll see. But I'd like, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to, I'd love to think that the work that you do with legal impact for chickens and the litigation and the practical approach and the driving the welfare reforms is, you know, one of the paths towards that eventual end goal. But I remember hearing about a survey, huge percentage of people said they wanted to ban slaughterhouses. I think it was the Sentience Institute survey. So there was a, there was a, there was a, I can't remember the exact numbers, but they were both quite close to 50%. One was uh, ending factory farming, which you can sort of imagine because most people say they're against factory farming, even as they continue to buy from it, because they convince themselves that all of their products are coming from free range family farms. Um, but yes, there was an explicit question about slaughterhouses. And I think it was something like 47% of the sample said, you know, we should ban slaughterhouses. Now, whether they thought through the implications of that for, you know, what they're going to see in their local supermarket, I don't know. But I think you're right. There is this sort of, there's like a latent ethic here. I mean, who, who could disagree? 
One thing I just want to say about um, people believing that they're eating products that don't come from factory farms is I think oh, part yeah. of that yeah. is the fault of false advertising because it's really common for um, or either false advertising in the legal sense or just like misleading but maybe not illegal advertising. Um, so there's been a lot of false advertising where companies will pretend that they're um, that their animals are treated differently than how they really are. And a lot of companies have been sued over that. But I also think there's just a lot of stuff that might not rise to the level of like illegal false advertising, but that's very misleading. Like um, if you look up almost any food company that, that you know uses factory farms, they will almost yeah. always have something on their website talking about how they use family farms. Or like in the chicken and meat industry, it's very common for people to say that the meat comes from like quote unquote family farms. And that might be technically true because they might be sending the birds out to contract growers that are run by families, but the families are running factory farms. And then the animals are sent to giant slaughterhouses owned by a giant corporation. And the giant corporation tells this family what to do. And the family is like in debt because of working with the giant corporation and they're helpless. And it's like, yeah. basically the family is a victim of this giant corporation. So it might be not technically a lie to use the word family farm, but it's a family, it's like a factory farm that a family has somehow been roped into. So um, so it might not be illegal to say that, but it's confusing. And I think a lot of, if consumers are confused, I think a lot of it is probably the fault of companies that are intentionally trying to trick people. Absolutely. And it's a it's and it's an easy thing to do because the consumers want to be tricked. So go win win. <laughs> People want to believe this stuff, right? So yeah, so it's it's pretty easy to do. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Well, that's been a, a absolutely fascinating. We've answered what's real, what matters, who matters, and how to make a better future in a pragmatic way that pushes towards a utopian vision. So I think that's pretty good in a couple of hours. It's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add into the conversation? Before um, we... Yeah, I, I loved this. And I just wanted to say, Jamie, that I agree with basically everything you say. And I think you're a visionary and so smart. And I've noticed that in this conversation, I've been sort of like pushing back up against everything. But that's, I'm doing that because I feel like I agree with you so much. Like when I first found you on Twitter, I was like, oh, this person really like says my worldview, you know, like I'm an atheist and I'm concerned about animals. And I'm also kind of worried about aliens if they could feel and like everything you're saying is so exactly what I think. And I think that's why I've been pushing back because um, it's fun to basically be like, it's almost like I can have a conversation with myself. Like, oh, you believe all these things I believe, but then what about this one part of like, how do we really know we even exist? So in case you're wondering, or the listener is wondering like why I keep kind of problematizing literally everything you say. That's why. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, I found somebody where I think you're basically right about everything. And I want to like try to like question everything you're saying so that I can question my own thoughts. So yeah, I just wanted to like say that. <laughs> I really like this. Well, thank you. That's such kind words. And it's been a real pleasure and I'm glad you've done that. And that's partly why I call these things conversations rather than interviews. Cause it gives me a chance to, bang on about my own points of view about things too so that's yeah I'm, I'm glad you sort of encouraged me to do that yeah it's been a real pleasure thank you so much thank you so what's the easiest way of people um following you on twitter which i know you're learning um supporting your work at uh, legal impact for chickens um yeah, how can so, people find you um you can just google legal impact for chickens 
We have the website, legalimpactforchickens.org. We are on Twitter, at Chickens Legal. Um, we're also on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, you can buy merch. If you go to our website, there's a link for that. Again, we're really, really looking to hire. So if you know any U.S. lawyers that you think would be interested, like, please tell them that there's a job opportunity where they can help huge numbers of animals by bringing creative, innovative lawsuits and that it's going to be really fun. Um, yeah, I guess that is it. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, send this to your, send yeah. this to your lawyer yeah. friends, yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you again so much for taking the time. It's been a real pleasure to have you as a guest on Sentientist Conversations. And please stay in touch and keep um, problematizing and um, let's keep talking. Thank you so much. This is super cool. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?